This episode of the Third Sector podcast is sponsored by Markel UK. Yes, and Markel would like to acknowledge what a privilege it's been to be the headline sponsor of the Third Sector Awards once again this year. Over the time that Markel has supported the Third Sector Awards, we have seen the annual event grow and highlight incredible examples of the hard work, dedication and commitment from individuals and organisations right across the sector. And although it's been a difficult year for everyone, you'd struggle to find a sector that's been more on the front line than the care sector. That's why, from the get-go of the COVID pandemic, Markel's priority has been going above and beyond to make sure its care customers felt supported so they could focus on doing what they do best. It has been a pleasure celebrating the finalists and winners of the Third Sector Awards, whose resilience truly is a credit to the sector. And a huge thank you once again to the awards headline sponsor, Markel. Now, on with the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each month, we're delving a little deeper into some of the conversations being had in our community, learning more about exciting innovations and probing some of the issues we're facing. This month, we'll be looking at Facebook. The social media giant has become even more important as a fundraising tool since the coronavirus pandemic struck. But a growing number of charities are asking whether giving money to an organisation that has been criticised for allowing fake news and hate speech to proliferate can be compatible with charitable values. Third Sector senior reporter Stephen Delahunty explored this issue in the most recent edition of Third Sector. He'll be speaking to Sarah Clark and Zoe Amar to find out how the situation has developed. And, as ever, we'll be bringing you our coronavirus care package. Good things in the sector that have grabbed our attention this month. But first, we learned, along with everybody else this weekend, that Baroness Stowell is going to be stepping down as chair of the Charity Commission in February. And as Rebecca put it, good. I mean, certainly judging by the conversations among our audience this weekend, I am yet to see anybody who is really sorry to hear about her going. Um, Rebecca, what are your thoughts? This this is difficult for me because anybody that's actually met me in person knows that I can be a little bit sweary. Uh, which is uh, something we've been trying to avoid on the Third Sector podcast. We don't condone swearing, yeah. On the Third Sector podcast, elsewhere, it's all good. Uh, but yes, um, so I'm going to try and keep this in, you know, language that I would I would be happy to say to my grandparents. So on one level, do you know what? Tina Stowell wasn't to know that her comments were going to end up on the front page. Um, they weren't front page worthy at all. And it's very clear that the Telegraph was desperately just trying to talk about anything that wasn't Marcus Rashford and um, his amazing campaign to ensure that children get free school, children who are on free school meals get that continued during the school holidays. And for some strange reason, the conservative leaning newspaper, The Telegraph, didn't want to talk about it. So um, instead, they featured the very sexed up comments of a conservative appointed conservative peer parroting stuff that our conservative prime minister has recently said. Yeah, so while she didn't say that they were facing an investigation, she did definitely make it sound like the National Trust had done something very, very wrong by um, commissioning a report into, and we've spoken about this on the podcast before, um, but they they commissioned a report looking at um, the connections between slavery and colonialism and some of the uh, houses and artefacts that are in their collection. And she, she made it sound like they'd done something 
dramatically, drastically, terribly wrong by producing this report. Yeah, so it was kind of inferred that the Charity Commission were maybe going to do an investigation into the National Trust to get them to explore the charity's purpose. Um, And then they came out and said there's no investigation happening. But obviously these remarks that had been made on a podcast at this point had then made it onto the front page of the paper. Yeah, and while there was no investigation, she did say that the the Charity Commission had contacted the National Trust over this, which just seems, even that seems like an overreaction. The people that are most likely to be interested in history seem to me to be National Trust members who have gone to a location. So they're interested in, in the history of this location and they're interested in history in general. So how on earth explaining the history of a place to people who are explicitly interested in both history and that place is some is straying from the national trust's um, purpose is is bizarre in the extreme, and it 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 seems to me to be massively inappropriate that the charity commission were even writing to the the trust demanding answers about this. And yet she doesn't like like you kind of hinted she didn't really explain what the issue was. Like a couple of times, I actually transcribed her comments, and she kind of tails off midway through the sentence, and kind of she starts by saying that kind of it might make supporters something and then kind of goes on to say that the trust should expect to be criticised. And I don't know if it's that it might make them uncomfortable or might make them surprised. It just it just seems to boil down to this this strange idea that donors should never learn anything or be confronted with something different to their expectations. And I don't know what that means for educational charities for a start. Mm. And there's also just this weird idea that donors are the only people who matter for a charity, um, which obviously they're important. Right. um, But you know, actually, the National Trust objects, if we're going to talk about what their objects are and what their purpose is, is preserving buildings and, and artefacts and landscapes for the benefit of the nation. So actually, their beneficiaries there is everybody in the nation. It's not just National Trust members. She seems to imply that the people who are interested in slavery and colonialism are different to the people interested in being members of the National Trust. And I'm not I'm not quite sure what she's trying to say there. Mm. And I just I just ultimately think it comes down to a very narrow traditional view of charity. There are just there's so much the charity sector is so much wider than the National Trust. So to be kind of putting that at the forefront seems to be such a bizarre choice at the moment. And I think it's just quite disappointing that after three years in you know, a job that should allow her to see beyond that. It is the job if you want to see what's going on in the charity sector. She's still fixated on this one version of what charity is. Mm, absolutely. So you have plenty of thoughts <laughs> I do, to sum that could... up. You have lots to say about it. I could go on. I think what's encouraging is I've seen a lot of people on Twitter and on social media um, actually either renewing or uh, in state, like taking up memberships to the National Trust in response to this, which again, I think it comes back to this idea that the support, oh, the supporters won't like the fact that you're looking into slavery and colonialism is a completely empty argument. Mm. And I would also be very interested in exactly how, and I know you raised this in the comment article you wrote for us yesterday, but in exactly how this was raised with the commission. Did people actually complain? Mm. And if not, where have those thoughts come from? I just have this wonderful image of her standing halfway up Glastonbury Tour trying to interview people who are walking their dogs <laughs> around there. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's... Did she did she flag down people coming out of Chartwell and say, what do you think about this? I don't know. And then buried way down in this story comes mm. the news that Baroness Stowell is not going to seek a second term as the chair of the Charity Commission. And as I said at the beginning, I am yet to see a single person who's like, oh no, she has been excellent for us. As a journalist, mm. I find it strange that there is yet to be any kind of formal announcement or press release around this. Yeah. We're now two or three days down the line and 
at Third Sector, we are yet to hear anything about the fact that uh, Baroness Stowell has made this comment and um, no indication of, you know, the timeline for maybe appointing a replacement. She said she's going to step down in February 2021. So the fact that we've only really got this article behind the paywall, and of course, I'm not one to be snooty about a paywall here, but the fact that we've only got this Telegraph article to go on this is a bit strange to me. Mm. I understand sometimes you want to give someone an exclusive, but that a few days down the line, there really has been very little further from the Charity Commission on what is a very, very big, you know, appointment story is unusual. It feels unusual. I mean, listen, turn your turn your podcast listeners up because I'm only going to say this the once. I actually feel a bit sorry for the Charity Commission press office here. Um, <sighs> yeah, I just, I, 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 well, for a start, like, do you have any idea how shirty they get if you ever imply that anything other than a um, statutory inquiry is an investigation? Like, I know this because I fell foul of it a couple of times when I first started at Third Sector. And, and you know, I have I have a lot of sympathy for that, actually. I think that they're, they're, they're completely right, because there is a tendency with journalists to sort of say, oh, you're asking a question. Uh, that must be an investigation. And I think that, you know, from from the regulator's point of view, that must be really irritating. So I get that. The Telegraph has just blithely turned this thing into an investigation, despite saying there's going to be no um, statutory inquiry, like they've been blindsided. And I do think there's a slight, there's a slightly irritating tendency among chairs of regulators to go to the right-leaning press to to make announcements, and then, and then because this has happened a couple of times to the fundraising regulator with their um, previous chair, that he would make these pronouncements in the Telegraph and or the Telegraph would even just run away with, with what he'd said and he wouldn't actually have said anything like it at all and they'd have to issue a statement the next day saying, oh yeah, we didn't mean to say that. Um, and it just seems weird that they keep going back to these publications and obviously we're a little bit biased. We would love them to come to Third Sector with their announcements. But I don't think they will after listening to this, Rebecca. Can I just say <laughs> that I don't, I don't think they're going to listen to this and think, gee, we must get in touch with Third Sector more often. <sighs> But I think there is an argument there for, you know, making important announcements in a way that most people have access to. So if that's the BBC or if that's putting out a press release to everybody, then fair enough. And I, I do think there is a genuine question here, professional kind of um, peak aside. Um, I think I think that's that's kind of fair. Well, until we get a f- more formal announcement coming through, uh, we are relying on on Twitter commentary for the moment. Um, something I was particularly struck by was a comment from Christiana Rickson, who is the head of policy at Akivo, um, who tweeted that the umbrella body would work to ensure the appointment process for Baroness Stowell's replacement is transparent and involves appropriate scrutiny and accountability. And she said this cycle of party political appointments will be broken. So Rebecca, before we actually get onto the meat of the podcast, what kind of a legacy do you think Baroness Stowell is going to leave behind her? And if you could choose an ideal person to replace her, who would that be? Ooh, that's fun. I mean, yeah, Baroness Stowell has not done much to endear herself recently to the charity sector. She's been she's been giving the same tired speech about public trust and confidence you know, which which is absolutely a timely and relevant speech for about January 2016. You know, she's been giving this during the middle of a coronavirus pandemic, which has just been this massive crisis for charities and, and, and with barely any kind of acknowledgement of that. And she kind of never really explains what charities are getting wrong. And I mean, perhaps that's because it boils down to much like her issue with the National Trust, which is, oh, I don't really like it. I personally don't like it. So I wish she wouldn't do it. Yeah. And, and in this the podcast, the Telegraph podcast, she was kind of saying that 
she'd made the charity sec the charity commission more democratic, more open to people. I'm not clear how it is that she's done that. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not saying she hasn't. I just she didn't really like many things in that podcast. She didn't really back it up by sort of explaining, you know, how she felt that she comes to that conclusion. So in terms of legacy, I don't know. I think there is an issue there. Um, yeah, I, I I'm not saying you shouldn't kick charities while they're down, but this particular hobby horse that she's been on, I don't think has been the most kind of helpful and timely, perhaps. Constructive. Yes, that's right. a good, that's a good uh, thing. But anyway, so who would replace her? Um, I mean, if I were feeling very cheeky, I might suggest um, Stephen Cook, former editor of Third Sector. Uh, so way back when, I think he would be a lot of fun. Otherwise, uh, I do think Doreen Lawrence might be quite a nice uh, replacement. She's probably got more than enough on her plate. Um, but I think Baroness Lawrence, I thought she'd be fantastic. Um but yeah, if we were trying not to have a party political candidate for this job, which, you know, it has the last few chairs have been kind of there have been questions around the political neutrality. I'd quite like to see a job share. I think that might be the best way to guarantee it. And I think you could have Susan Elan Jones, who's former MP, former Labour MP and was um, one of the co-chairs of the all party parliamentary group on volunteering and charities. And then Robin Hodgson, who is a Conservative Lord, who sat opposite her or was, was also one of the co-chairs I believe of that um that group I think those two as a job share would balance this issue out a bit so there you go the uh the DCMS can have that one for free from us that's our dream shopping list yeah and in the meantime we will be obviously watching this story with great interest as it develops and now we will get on to the real first part of our podcast In July, a group of 37 charities joined the Stop Pay for Profit boycott of the platform, refusing to run any adverts on Facebook, and they formed a campaign group, Charities Against Hate. In the most recent edition of Third Sector, I looked at how charities are grappling with the challenge of working out how their Facebook use can align with their values. I caught up with the Head of Partnerships at Comms Network, Charity Comms, and organiser of the Charities Against Hate campaign, Sarah Clark, and charity digital expert, Zoe Amar. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm good, Stephen. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. For anyone who hasn't been fortunate enough to see our latest print edition, can you just explain how the Charities Against Hate group came together um, and what's outlined some of your main goals? Um, sure, of course. As you um, said in the introduction, back in July during the time of the Facebook advertising boycott, uh, a group of 37 charities from the UK came together to produce a joint statement which outlined how we would work together to review how social media giants could start to reduce hate speech on their platforms. Um, so now, following on from that, we are collaborating as a group to develop long-term recommendations for real and meaningful changes on the platforms. Um, we all know that online spaces can feel as real to all of us as our real lives, especially for the people that our charities are working to support. Um, and now more than ever, because our obviously our ability to meet in person remains limited and probably will do for some time. Um, so as charities, we use social media for many reasons, fundraising, raising awareness, um, sharing vital and trusted information and connecting with the communities that we support. But everyone's also very aware that some people use social media to share hate speech, and that has a very profound and lasting effect and can cause real harm to real people. 
So our campaign to encourage social media companies to be more inclusive and do better to prevent online hate is, is what we're working to achieve together as a group of charities. Um, so we aim to produce a collective proposal of clear changes that will benefit not just the communities that we serve, but also policymakers and the wider public um, to, to start to make social media a more positive place and, and to create some real change. And do you think this campaign is even more relevant at the moment as you know many charities are looking to pivot their services online as a, as a result of the pandemic? Absolutely. Um, a lot of charities have had to do that over the past seven months. Um, really quickly turn around services that would have been traditionally delivered in person um, to being delivered online and digitally. Um, and often, especially at smaller charities, it's people who that may not be their area of expertise. So they've had to learn very, very quickly. And it's a lot to do all together at the same time. We, we also know that people's online use during pandemic has increased. It's not and it's not going to go away. It's going to keep keep increasing um, because a lot of things have changed, such as working from home. So both personally and professionally, people are online a lot more. Um, so the more that we can do to support the charities that we work with, the better, not just the beneficiaries, but people who are working every day on social media and managing those accounts. Yeah, of course. And it's been about four months since the boycott now. What has the campaign group been doing since then? Well, now we're a group of over 40 charities working together. Um, we've created uh, several working groups to look at specific areas such as best practice, product recommendations, mental health, uh, lobbying and working with corporate partners. Um, so at the minute, our best practice group is finalising a framework for best practice in ethical digital marketing and comms practices, which is aimed at those working in marketing and comms within charities. Um, because while the whole uh, group of the coalition as a whole is actively calling on social media companies to do more and um, to remove hate speech from their platforms, in reality, we recognise that often that will fall to the organisations and the charities themselves. So as a practical step, the, the framework outlines best practices um, and support for those people who are working on the front line. Um, and we also did a survey uh, in September to the beneficiaries and supporters of our charities, um, which has provided really good insights into the effect that online hate speech is having um, and we're hoping to use that data and produce uh, some reports uh, around December time this year so that um, people can find out more. Yeah, I saw a bit of the survey that you shared on Twitter and it said that 83% of beneficiaries have experienced hate online. Um, were you surprised at all by how high that number is? Not necessarily surprised. Um, I think uh, it, it's always been around online hate um, and online hate speech. Uh, last year, the Alan Turing Institute found that between 30 and 40 percent of people in, throughout the UK have seen online abuse and about 10 to 20 percent have personally been targeted by online abuse. Um, so the figure has it looks like it's definitely increased. Um, and a recent report from Glitch and the End the Violence Coalition um, showed that 29 percent of those who'd experienced online abuse prior to the pandemic reported it being worse. Um, which isn't terribly surprising given that we know people are living their lives more and more online um, and particularly given the social and political um, situations around, around the world um, that 
uh, sort of atmosphere lends itself more to this kind of behavior online. Um, so it's even more important now that we're working to, to protect and to support the people that we work with. Um, interestingly, we found that 77% of charity staff have not received training to support them in dealing with online hate, which is quite surprising because they're the ones that are on the front line. So that's a, a big part of our work is to, to support the staff as well. And I also saw that earlier this month, some members of your group had a meeting with the, with the Shadow Deputy Leader of the House of Commons, Sal Khan. Can you talk a bit about what that was about and how it went? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was very positive initial discussion uh, to introduce Charities Against Hate and what we're working to achieve. Um, and it's one of many discussions that we hope to have with a variety of other people hopefully MPs to, to help around the lobbying aspect of things um, and also other organisations who are working towards similar objectives so that we can work together and share resources. Um, and obviously there's a lot of things already in motion, like the online harms bill, um, which outlines measures to, to, to aim to make the UK the safest place in the world to be online um, and ensure the safety and security of people online. So there's there's good intentions out there. It's just to make sure that they're, they're being kept um, front of mind. Um, and despite the, the sort of work that's being done to by various groups to make uh, online platforms more accountable, it, it does seem that legislation is one of the best ways forward to achieve that. So with things like the online harms bill being delayed quite a lot, and we're still, you know, nobody really knows when it's going to, going to be passed, um, we need to maintain that momentum. Um, and also work as a sector to, to take collective action and also look internally at ourselves and make sure that we're all working towards the best practice. Since July, Facebook has um, made a number of announcements in terms of removing topics and Facebook pages and groups from the platform. One of them was the QAnon conspiracy theory, which, for those who don't know, is a, a conspiracy that says President Trump is waging a war against the elite. Satan worshipping paedophiles. Uh, I mean, there's not enough time to discuss that as a topic <laughs> in, at, at the moment, but um, no. <laughs> it also it also made an announcement about Holocaust denial and also around anti-vaccination adverts. And mm-hmm. Particularly the anti-vaccination stuff was something I talked about in our print issue. Do you think those announcements are a sign that pressure groups like yourselves you know, are having some success? Um, potentially. I mean, I think the, the pressure... Has been building for years um, and people have been fighting back against online abuse since all of the platforms first came out um, so it, it seems like the years and years of work by lots of different groups and different people um, is maybe finally being heard and more and more people are willing to stand up and say you know enough is enough we don't want to see this on our feeds every day and we don't want to have to have to deal with this and um, you know I think it feels it does feel like uh, there's a bit of momentum a bit of a movement kind of happening and people are willing to to voice their opinions um so if those are being heard then that's great yeah and did you see there's also been um another external oversight group has been set up called the real facebook oversight board which is a mix of sort of mps and journalists and i guess like digital activists who um yeah are trying to do the job of what they say facebook's own oversight group isn't doing because Mm-hmm. Facebook's own oversight group has apparently only met once in the time it's been formulated over over the last year or so. Are you sort of aware of the work they're doing? And again, is that a sign um, that people are starting to come together on this issue now and find sort of common ground? Um, I hope so. I mean, I think this is more of a 
a sort of emergency um, measure and something that's been brought in primarily for the, the election. Um, so so while it's great that, that things like this are happening, the ideal would be um, that this is all an intrinsic part of the platforms and they don't need external pressure. They don't need external groups to, to sort of make them do this. It should be part and parcel of everything that is involved in the platform from the beginning. Um, so that might seem quite ideal, but that's the, the sort of uh, aim, I guess, everyone would really like to be working towards. So I think it's it's a bit early to see, but hopefully it'll have some success um, and move things along in the right direction. Just finally to go back to the working groups that you set up and the work they're doing, is it too soon to say sort of what sorts of recommendations are going to come out of those discussions and yeah, when we can expect some feedback? Uh, well, we are hoping we're in the process of creating a, a website where people can go and it'll be a hub for, for information and any new um, documentation that we release. So hopefully in December, we'll have the results of our survey up there. Um, and the best practice um, recommendations for the third sector. And also then in January, we're hoping to have some more product recommendations. So things around AI um, and, you know, just practical things that platforms can do to make the experience easier for, for everyone online um, to report hate speech and, and all that kind of thing. Um, we'll hopefully have those available in January and we can start to put those towards the, the social media companies. That's great. Shada, thanks again for talking to me and I look forward to hearing your recommendations as they come out soon. Okay, so Zoe, thanks for joining us on this edition of the podcast. Could you highlight some of the recurring issues that you've heard from trustees about how their organisations use Facebook and you know social media platforms in general and what some of the main concerns are? Thanks, Stephen. Absolutely. So in my role as chair of the Charity Digital Code of Practice and also in my day job uh, uh, running a digital consultancy, um, I noticed that the conversation about Facebook really began to change amongst trustees way back in 2018. Uh, So not long after the Cambridge Analytica story broke, uh, I noticed that trustees were beginning to talk about social media quite a lot and particularly in the context of Facebook the key issues that were coming up were often about trust so our charity is using this platform um, but can we actually trust them um, to look after the, the data that's involved there what's happening to our donors and beneficiaries and supporters and other stakeholders data when they are talking to our charity via Facebook uh, other key concern that seemed to come up quite a lot was we're very dependent on on Facebook now uh, do we need to diversify do we need to look at other social media platforms and underpinning all of those big questions uh, was this central issue about ethics do Facebook's ethics ultimately match the values of our charity and that actually influenced some of the best practice that we put into the charity digital code of practice um, we don't we don't mention Facebook specifically but we did talk about thinking about whether the ethics indeed of, of, of any platform actually match your ethics as a charity and why that needs to be considered. In July, wasn't it? We spoke about a number of these issues. And I think since then, over the summer, you know, I've noticed a lot of like, whistleblowers from Facebook coming forward and 
you know, there's been a number of reports about the platform banning ads. Um, not one of the topics was something we discussed, which was sort of anti-vaccination adverts. Mm-hmm. Um, has there been, is it, you know, is it too soon to say whether there's been any increase in concerns over the summer since the Charities Against Hate campaign? It's it's a really good question. I, I wouldn't say that I had noticed a... A, a huge jump in 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 concerns but absolutely there's a growing number of charities beginning to ask um about facebook you know all those issues that you mentioned about is is this the right fit are we doing enough to monitor some of the risks in this relationship how can we best partner with facebook going forward should we be working with facebook going forward and also most pertinently through that particular campaign how can we influence facebook uh, to make sure that they are operating in an ethical, transparent way. And as you have seen from the campaign, that's obviously very much a work in progress. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned, like, should they work with Facebook going forward? Because isn't obviously part of the problem that Facebook is a platform and, and its reach and its position in the market is that many charities really can't afford not to use the platform at the moment. It is absolutely a, a huge challenge uh, because many organizations are understandably very dependent on Facebook. I've worked with many small charities, for example, where they they might not have much resource at all to invest in in a website. But Facebook will be absolutely critical for them in terms of how they they run their services. So they might be running a a support group for local kids of uh, um, parents of kids with cancer on on Facebook, for example. And it will be absolutely critical to their service delivery. It will be critical to telling people about their fundraising uh, campaigns that they've got coming up. So I think that is half the problem, that Facebook's market dominance is so huge that there is not currently a viable alternative and that's where uh, the campaign that we saw earlier this summer is is so important because it's about the sector having a collective voice on this issue and saying that what Facebook is doing there is not going to go unchallenged. With the lack of any alternative at the moment how can sort of trustees and charity leaders prioritise their digital services and how they use social media in a way that both meets the challenges posed by the current pandemic and in a way that aligns with their ethics. I mean, looking at this from the other side of, 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 of you know, the side of the coin, that I think the, the thing is that whilst there are obviously some big ethical questions about Facebook and indeed other aspects of big tech, uh, it's, it's also very true that there are some very good things about the, the offering of, of these social media companies and other aspects of big tech as well. You know, like we, we just said, uh, social media offers some very good opportunities for charities to spread the word about what they do and to fundraise and to campaign and to raise awareness of, of issues that uh, might not previously have got the, the airtime that they would have before. Um, so I think that the key question here is about balance. Um, so I'm not saying that the answer is necessary to go off grid and not use any social media at all. Um, but there is something there about people at all levels in the organisation, including trustees, uh, monitoring the risk. So 
being aware of the risk identifying the risk I think documenting the risk if you think it is it is serious enough and then also monitoring um, how you are managing that risk as an organization yeah and that sort of comes on to my next question about you know what sort of practical measures can charities put in place to manage their online presence on any platform and like any other risk they would normally manage? It's a really good question because I think this year in particular the, the debate on social media has become very very febrile uh, in, in, in so many ways. Um, it, we're obviously recording this on, on the day uh, that there's been a, a lot of debate on social media. I was looking just before I came on now uh, about the the potential u-turn on uh school meals and uh Volker's Rashford's fantastic work in that area um I think that the big thing is very much about keeping a very very close eye on your social media presences so in terms of measuring and, and managing the key thing is to make sure that you are monitoring what's being said about your charity on social media um continually looking at the data as well um so i think part of 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 that preempting the the challenges that might come up is looking at what content is engaging your supporters not engaging your supporters for example if there's a particular post where it might be getting lots of negative Con- and comments and also a lot of engagement as well those to me are two red flags that this is something that could absolutely end up in the the press over the next few days if if not the very least splashed all all over twitter uh, and one of my mantras is that nothing prepares you for a crisis like a crisis and actually if we think about an organization like the rnli who handled a huge crisis on social media last year very skillfully I think that one of the reasons they were able to do it so well is because they had been through uh, a number of very difficult press stories before and had handled that in an exemplary fashion on social media so I think good monitoring of what you're doing um, making sure that you uh, have have people with with good skills working on your social media presence and then also making sure that you have a plan in place for when you might receive some criticism online uh, and that you've drilled that plan so everyone knows what they're doing and when and what the key responsibilities are uh, that is a very good way to prepare for when the worst could happen okay and I mean we again we spoke about sort of governance in the past and we were talking about how um, a previous inquiry by the Department for Media, Culture and Sport into Facebook concluded that really some sort of code of ethics was needed that would be overseen by an independent regulator but that doesn't seem very forthcoming at the moment so what uh, what does good governance look like for charities in its absence? There's a few things that I would suggest there. I mean, the the first thing is uh, do take a look at the Charity Digital Code of of Practice, which has got lots of advice for leaders and trustees about how uh, they can uh, make the right decisions about digital. A few other things that I would recommend are make sure that the right people in your charity are having the right conversations. So we've talked about a, a really good example already today, which is about trustees not getting involved Involved in the operational detail of Facebook, um, but having on their their radar uh, that. Uh, the, the organisation is is obviously using these channels, but also some of the, the key concerns, if your charity has those, uh, about that platform and what you're doing to monitor and, and, and manage that. Um, 
And I think it's just some of the common sense stuff that uh, can get overlooked, but is is really, really important for that good governance. So making sure that the trustees have oversight, so they're aware of, of what's going on with digital without getting uh, caught up in the, the, the granular everyday stuff, but making sure trustees are appropriately informed. So they've got that overview of, of the key things that are going on, the opportunities and, and, and the risks. And definitely making sure there's also that ownership of key digital initiatives and that the accountabilities are really spelt out clearly as well um, and that everyone's using data to make properly data informed decisions about what you're going to do on, on digital and how you're going to manage any risks. So some of that not terribly exciting, but I think really essential nuts and bolts stuff of who's doing what and when and how can we monitor this and who's responsible and how are we going to make sure this happens? Yeah, so really, yeah, just just a bit of common sense at the moment until, you know, maybe any future legislation is, is even adopted. Where do you stand on the leg- legislation debate? Do you think it is the answer or that it, it is going to be necessary going forward? I think that the uh, big tech companies, including Facebook, are well aware of, of the issues. No one could say to them, you haven't been aware that, that this could be coming. Uh, and, and indeed, obviously, even an organisation like Facebook has made a, a significant hire uh, in in uh, Nick Clegg over um, over the last uh, year or so, clearly looking at uh, some of the, the key issues that may have to be thought through around potential legislation. Um, so I don't think it will be it will be a surprise to those companies that, that this is happening in any way. And they have been given a chance to prove themselves and show that they can govern themselves. Uh, and unfortunately, it doesn't look like that is possible at the moment. In the ab- absence of that, I think legislation is the answer. Okay, well, um, yeah, thanks for that, Zoe. It's uh, been really good talking to you again. Um, we'll hopefully speak to you again soon. So once again, it is time for our coronavirus care package and we have made another list of interesting or cheerful stories that have caught our attention in this past month or so. Rebecca, give me some good news. Okay, so uh, my favourite one uh, this month has been Sarah Atkinson's Twitter feed. So Sarah Atkinson, formerly of the Charity Commission, the Director of Communications at the Charity Commission, is now the uh, Chief Executive of the Social Mobility Foundation. And... She said on Twitter that she'd re- she'd received an email from somebody saying you weren't what I thought of when I think of a charity chief executive. You don't look like you're you're not someone who looks like a charity chief executive. Um, and she kind of put a photo of herself, I think, just having given birth to one of her children, looking kind of, you know, glowing with new motherhood, but also kind of exhausted, like you've just given birth and kind of being like, this is what a charity chief executive looks like. Deal with it. And the response was absolutely phenomenal. You know, it's it kind of it, it basically went viral. It had you know thousands of retweets. Uh, inspired a lot of other chief executives, uh, particularly women and uh, black and Asian chief executives as well, to kind of tweet pictures themselves and say, you know, this is what a charity chief executive looks like. It doesn't have to be whatever your traditional image of a charity chief executive might be. And I just I do find that weird because. You know, we do grow up in a society that is kind of um, does have certain biases in it. And, you know, I've been known to kind of assume that a chief executive of a charity was male. 
You correct yourself and think, well, I'll learn from that. You don't email the person to be like, no, you and reality must be wrong because you don't yes. fit with my image. Like that's bonkers. Um, so yes, so that was uh, just really glorious. And I would I would thoroughly recommend you, you check out uh, Sarah Atkinson's Twitter feed and some of the responses to that because that was great. Um, so yes, so what have you got for us, Emily? Uh, I have some great stories. I love everything that I found this month. And the first one is all to do with goats specifically mountain goats. Um, at the beginning of the COVID-19 lockdown, the quiet Welsh village of Landudno caught the global spotlight after a veritable horde of great orm mountain goats were filmed overrunning the village, partly because I think there were fewer cars around and it was quieter during the lockdown. Um, for a, a few days, these goats absolutely overtook this village and made media headlines and all sorts around the world. Now, the local charity St David's Hospice was facing a fundraising crisis like so many other local organisations that we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic. And they came up with the brilliant idea to immortalise the joy of these uh, mountain goats by creating a range of goat-related merchandise, which included t-shirts, hoodies and limited edition stuffed goat toys. The merch has since become a worldwide phenomenon and has now raised more than 120 grand for the charity. Um, which is just incredible, and I think it's a brilliant. I think it's a brilliant story about how just a, a simple idea turning it into an, a reality has come with huge effect for that charity. I think it's phenomenal, and I would say if anybody is looking for a stocking filler this Christmas, check out the St David's Hospice website because the t-shirts and the stuffed toys are fantastic, and it all goes to a good cause. So that is my first good thing. That is fantastic. And a very, really nice example of kind of seizing on something that was capturing the public imagination and just really capitalising on it. So that's brilliant. OK, uh, so my next one is a dad. Peter Heckles um, has a from Worthing has a black Labrador named Nala and he decided to draw a picture of Nala to inspire his son and, and uploaded the photo of his work to Facebook alongside a jokey caption offering to sell it for about 299 quid. Uh, and he kind of said, it's pretty crap. And by the end of the day, he had seven requests from friends who wanted a drawing of their own pets. Basically got sort of inundated with uh, messages and requests in the end. And he's raised thousands and thousands of pounds for charity after these drawings went viral. Go and look these these drawings up on, on Google because they are just kind terrible. Of, they are they absolutely are terrible. terrible, but in, in a fantastic way. In a fantastic way. Like they're very cute and you kind of can see what he was what he was going for with the, you know, they've got the photo of the pet next to the picture of the pet and you're like, oh yeah, I, I do see how you got there. Uh, it does It does make sense in a kind of, abstract Picasso does pet pictures almost um and yeah it's raised thousands for charity um and yeah really really impressive fantastic I might have to uh maybe get a panda portrait done for Christmas Yay! for my mum and dad get it framed send some money to a good cause we should we should say for listeners Emily has a uh Portuguese, Portuguese water, water dog I don't own an actual panda Sorry, no. uh, I should clarify. <laughs> I don't agree with the trading of exotic wildlife and bringing them to domestic. It's yeah, it's, it's she's a dog, but we call her Panda because we like life to be confusing. And she's been one of the highlights of Third Sector's lockdown experience, watching her grow from a tiny puppy to a massive dog and be hauled up for video meetings. She, yeah, I have to haul her up under her armpits now because she's huge. Anyway, enough, enough yeah. of Panda. <laughs> 
I would like to give a shout out to the Royal National Institute of Blind People. Um, the charity has created a pregnancy test prototype which will allow women with sight loss to find out the results of their test in privacy. Um, it's a phenomenal product. It's been two years in the making and it features a very large tactile button that becomes raised when a pregnancy test result is positive. So it uses exactly the same technology as any other pregnancy test, but it changes the output from a digital screen to a mechanical button. And this is really important because since, you know, ordinary everyday pregnancy tests rely on a visual symbol, it means that women with sight loss are denied privacy when they take one because they have to rely on somebody else to read their result for them. So this prototype means that they are no longer going to have to do that. It's going to enable their right to privacy. And I just think it's an amazing, very simple example of how much we need to be thinking about accessibility in everyday life when we are designing these things. Um, I was just blown away when I saw it. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. No, it's fantastic because it is just the sort of thing that you never think about um, as a person who does not have sight loss. Um, it just would never occur to you. Um, and yeah, I think this is absolutely the role of these kind of service user charities to be taking that expertise and that knowledge and really putting the beneficiaries first and putting putting out something into the world that will materially improve their lives. It's amazing. I can't wait to see it going out to stores. I sincerely hope that it does. Yeah, that's fantastic. What's your next thing, Rebecca? Uh, my last one is just a bit of joy that I think everybody has loved. Last month, we really struggled to find good things, good news things to put on the podcast. And this came just after we'd recorded the podcast. Um, and this is the Great North Air Ambulance Services uh, use of jet suits to help find injured people. Actual jet packs to fly across mountain spaces or like moorland spaces um, and uh, in the in the Lake District to find people. So basically where the terrain is too rough in the Lake District for a helicopter to be able to land safely near an incident, they can send a one of their um, paramedics in a jetpack out across Hill and Dale to find people and treat and offer treatment and see what needs to happen next. And it's just just joyful so the the suits have so far reached speeds of up to 85 miles per hour and are able to operate for between five and ten minutes at a time so it's kind of for quick short bursts but um it's just yeah a fantastic idea it's absolutely brilliant and i think i i think i read um that it when they tested it it took a paramedic 90 seconds to travel a distance which otherwise would have taken half an hour on foot so if you think about the 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 distance traveled in the time um and how important that can be if you are responding to an emergency incident that is you know an absolutely phenomenal development and i for one cannot wait to see little iron man people zipping around all over the lake district although hopefully obviously you would hope they wouldn't have to be zipping around because we don't want people having accidents but yeah. it's just going to be a really really interesting addition to the skyline if that ever becomes uh produced for the mass market yeah it's just it's just making my nerdy little heart very happy so there's that <laughs> uh, and then have you got any more for us I have one final shout out, uh, which goes to Max Woosie. Um, Max is a 10 year old boy who has been sleeping in a tent outside in his garden for more than 200 days now in memory of two of his family friends. Max was inspired to start sleeping outside every night in a tent, which was left to him by his friend and his neighbour Rick, who died in February this year. Rick was 74 and he said to Max, promise me that you will have an adventure in this tent giving in the tent before he passed away from cancer. And Max has now raised more than £16,000 for the North Devon Hospice that cared for Rick and for Rick's wife in their final days. And the challenge has been such a success. He says he's enjoyed being away from his parents and being able to read the Beano late at night. 
that he is now looking to spend an entire year sleeping in his tent in the garden. So I would just like to say best of luck to him, particularly as we are going through these winter months ahead. I think it's a brilliant thing that you're doing for your friend and I wish you every joy in your sleep out. Yeah, best of luck. Have an amazing time and enjoy your adventure. We'll be back with another episode soon, so make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Thank you to our guests, Sarah Clark and Zoe Amar, to the producer, Ben Lonsborough, and to you for listening. <laughs>